unashamed of the Great Commission is the title of today's message. Unashamed of the Great Commission. And my text will be 1 Timothy 1.15, which most of you know is a text near and dear to my heart. 1 Timothy 1.15, a pastoral epistle, inspired of the Holy Spirit of God, inerrant, preserved, and authoritative. A pastoral epistle written to exhort and instruct pastors, elders for all time, and by extension, every church and every individual Christian for all time. 1 Timothy 1.15. Read with me there, please. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. This is a faithful saying. It's a true saying. It's a vital saying. It's an important saying. It's the heart of the matter. It's the main thing. This saying, this statement, this verse is the summation of creation. Why is there a cosmos? Why are there stars? Why are there planets? Why is there this planet called earth? Why is there life on it? So that Christ Jesus could come into the world to save sinners to the glory of God. This is a faithful saying. This is important. This gets an exclamation point. The Greek has no punctuation. Here's your punctuation. This is a faithful saying. It's the heart of the matter. It's the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, universal acceptance, global acceptance, in every church, in every culture, in every time, in every place. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, complete acceptance, complete submission of heart, mind, body, soul, and lungs, lungs that God has given you to glorify Him. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. We have no right as local churches. We have no right as denominations. We have no right as Bible colleges or seminaries to gather around and say, what will we make the main thing? What will we make the thrust of our church ministry? What will we focus on? The reason we live and breathe is for the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the redemption of sinners. The reason there is a church left here on the earth is to glorify God through the redemption of sinners. Otherwise, the Lord would snatch us up to heaven the moment He brings us into His family through regeneration and washing us in His blood. And saints, there is eternity coming. New heavens, new earth, in which only righteousness dwells. No more sin, no more Satan, no more death, and no more opportunity to magnify Christ to the redemption of sinners. You'll be able to worship, you'll be able to fellowship, you'll be able to proclaim the glories of God, even as the angels will be. Those functions of the church will continue forever. The one thing we won't be able to do is to glorify God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the redemption of sinners by joining in His great work, His great mission that He came into the world to accomplish in saving sinners. All week long, I preached to lost and perishing men and women how precious their life is and how brief it is. 
Just one little dash between two dates on a tombstone coming for them that they will soon be six feet under. What are you going to do with that little dash? That one little dash that you have to glorify God in the redemption of sinners. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to make you a better person. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to make you a better husband, a better wife, a better father, a better mother. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to save your job. Christ Jesus did not come into the world to save your self-esteem. Christ Jesus did not come into the world even to save your marriages. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. All the things I've just listed are important things, but they are all secondary. They are all secondary. And when we keep the main thing, the main thing, we are well submitted to Christ. And all those other things fall into place where they belong. You see, it's hard to fail as a father when you are utterly submitted to Christ as king and fighting a good fight for His glory in the earth and the redemption of sinners. It's hard to fail as a husband and a wife when you're utterly committed to the glory of God and the redemption of sinners, even those ones He gave you that you call children. Because you're keeping the main thing the main thing. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's hard to fail professionally when you're keeping the main thing the main thing. You know that your job is more than a job. You're there on the mission field to glorify God. And so working as under the Lord and not as an eye pleaser or a man pleaser is important to you. Because you don't want your testimony, the testimony of Christ, to be soiled by your poor work ethic. So you're there working hard every day. So on break time and lunch time and coffee time before work and supper time after when you invite coworkers over, you can proclaim the glory of Christ. And they'll have seen your character already, your unusual character your love of your neighbor in the workplace, your love of blue-collar and white-collar. Keeping the main thing, the main thing, keeping the main priority in the a-priori position puts everything in place. As we are well-submitted to Christ in the main thing, we will tend to be well-submitted to Christ in the tertiary things, the secondary things. So this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. People are not neutral. They're sinners until they're saints. And if they're saints, they ought to be busy about saving sinners. It ought to be clear that they're saints because they have that mark upon them, that missionary mark, that evangelistic mark. They have a mission. They have something to live for, the glory of God, the redemption of sinners. And we're all on the same team. We're the army of God. Marching is to war with the full armor of God upon ourselves and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the sword of the Spirit in our hand being wielded as the power of God and the salvation as faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And if we call ourselves Calvinists who believe in the sovereignty of God, then then we should be the tip of the spear in the Lord's army, should we not? We who have supposed utter confidence that God's elect will be saved, that God's chosen ones will be saved, because Romans 9 is explicit and clear Thus we stand on Romans 10 and march with that evangelistic zeal toward the battle for the glory of God in the redemption of sinners. They are sinners. They are rebels against God. They are Romans 1 God-haters until God regenerates their dead hearts. And God does not regenerate dead hearts in a vacuum. God has condescended to use the army of God as we march to war in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our circle of friends, and even, yes, two by two 
having studied up and prayed up, we actually stand up and go, therefore, to the world. As the Lord Jesus exemplified, as the Lord Jesus trained His disciples, and actually, not figuratively, but actually sent them out two by two, training them to go, literally, go, find lost people wherever they are, and preach Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. Preach Jesus Christ, the one name under heaven given among men, by which they must be saved. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptance, for Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Sinners saved by grace, that's what we are. Sinners saved by grace, thus we can identify with other sinners. We can pity them, not have apathy, but pity and love. Not have pride and look down our self-righteous noses and unclean. We'll not touch them. We will not approach them. We don't want to know them. We will go to them. We will find them wherever they are. And we will preach the word of God to them. Because the law of God is a tutor to bring men to Christ to be justified by faith. Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Do we believe that? Many do. And sadly, a great many more don't. They don't. They may profess to believe it, but they don't. Because our lives always reveal what we truly believe. They always reveal what we truly believe. And when you have churches and pastors and whole denominations who essentially do nothing with the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of the four walls of the local church, we don't truly believe that the Great Commission is great. We don't truly believe that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and this is the main thing. We don't truly believe that the Word of God is the power of God and His salvation. We don't truly believe that all those whom Christ pronounced to tell us die will repent, will confess Christ as Lord, and will be saved when they come under the hearing of the Word of God. We don't truly believe that Jesus is the wisest evangelist to ever walk the earth. And thus we ask stupid questions, like what would Jesus do? Instead of seeing what Jesus did, seeing what Jesus trained his disciples to do, and seeing what Jesus commanded us to do, and going, therefore, in obedience, and doing it, and turning the world upside down. Here is my premise, saints. It is simple. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here's the message. It's simple. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was His cause. Thus, it is mine. That was His purpose. Thus, it is mine. That was where He lived, bled, and died. Thus, it is where I shall, by the grace of God, live, bleed, and die. Here is my stand. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here, I intend, by the grace of God, to spend and be spent. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here I call you, my brothers and sisters, to spend and be spent. For Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here we must live. Here we must labor. Here we must suffer. And here we must die. You have one life to live. You have one life to give. Give your life to Christ's great mission, the mission to save sinners. You have one life to live. Live it passionately, engaged in Jesus Christ's great passion to save sinners. Do you want to love and magnify Christ? Then don't merely attend church. That's just the beginning. That's just to get equipped. It's vital. It's important. But that's to get equipped for a life of victory, a life as a champion, a life as a soldier of Jesus Christ, magnifying His name in the earth. Do you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, good and faithful slave? Seek to save sinners. 
Do you want to love your lost neighbor perishing in his sin? Seek to save sinners. We have not loved one sinner until we have brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. We do not love sinners if we do not bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are hating them with our apathy. Hating them. We're not loving them. If we say, oh, I love my children. I love my children. But we won't provide that which is essential to keep them alive. Are we loving them? If they starve to death, did we love our children? While we are fat? While we are gluttons? While we are obese? And our children starve to death, did we love our children? We have hated them. Dear ones, the vast majority of professing Christians are obese. They are spiritually obese. They have feasted upon the Word of God. They have feasted upon the doctrines of Christ. To what end? Their spiritual bellies won't even hardly let them belly up to the table to feast anymore on God's Word because they refuse to labor in the field of harvest. Oh, dear saints, that which is coming upon us in the world, this tyranny, this Romans 1 insurrection, this Psalm 2 insurrection, this abominable, universal embracing of the most vile perversion, this suppression of truth and unrighteousness until I can't go out in the community without seeing men dressed as women and women dressed as men and children being allowed to live out their lives as dogs and cats. That culture is a result of our apathy, our hatred, our refusal to obey Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. The Titanic is sinking. The captain of the ship is saying, man the boats, women and children first. And the church is up on the deck singing praise songs with hands lifted high. And the captain says, what are you doing? What are you doing? The Titanic is sinking. Man the boats. Fill them. Women and children first. This thing's going down. They're all going to perish. And we got our hands lifted high. We love Jesus. We love Jesus. No, we do not. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And his standing commandment, his greatest commandment, is to love God and love neighbor. But how? By going, therefore, and making disciples. God is most glorified in the redemption of sinners. Sinners are most loved in the redemption of sinners. And we have no claim on loving them at all when we allow them to run headlong into hell so we can preserve our peace, preserve our position, preserve our career, preserve the good opinion of our fellow man, our fellow worker, our family, our friends. By the grace of God, we need to die to self and be alive unto Christ. We need to be humbled and broken, even as Paul ends that verse saying, of whom I am chief. I am chief. I'm a chief sinner, saved by grace alone. And maybe some of you have forgotten how sinful you were and how glorious it was to be saved. But I know what I was saved from. I know who I am left to myself. I know what it was to be in darkness. I know what it was to be evil. And thus I know what it is to be washed with the blood of the Lamb and to be made righteous with His perfect righteousness, to be given the right to be called a child of God when I was once decidedly a child of the devil. A chief sinner. And so I pity my fellow sinners. I pity their lostness, their blindness, their deafness. I I pity the deception they're under, the devil's deception as they serve him day by day. And when they heap scorn and hostility and anger upon me, as a rule, I, I have only love for them. I have only grace for them. As a rule. Charles Spurgeon said this, There are ministers of Christ present at this hour, together with city missionaries, Bible women, Sunday school teachers, and other workers in my master's vineyard, 
And I make bold to inquire of each one of them, is this your object in all your Christian service? Do you, above all things, aim at saving souls? I'm afraid that some have forgotten this grand object. But dear friends, anything short of this is unworthy to be the great end of a Christian's life. I fear there are some who preach with a view of amusing men. And as long as people can be gathered in crowds and their ears can be tickled and they can retire pleased with what they have heard, the orator is content and folds his hands and goes back self-satisfied. But Paul did not lay himself out to please the public and collect the crowd. If he did not save them, he felt that it was of no avail to interest them. Unless the truth had pierced their hearts, affected their lives, and made new men of them, Paul would have gone home crying. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now I shall endeavor to unpack the Scriptures, dear saints, with the goal of compelling us to die to self and take up the cross of Christ to seek to save sinners. That is our brief exposition of 1 Timothy 1.15. Let us search the Scriptures more broadly. The entire Old Testament is about Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. Do you know that? The entire Old Testament is about Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners. Does not the entire Old Testament tell us of a suffering, bleeding, dying, risen Savior who would come to save sinners? Amen, it does. Genesis 3.15, the first message of the gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, the virgin-born Son of God. Her seed. Not the seed of man. Her seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, the seed of the woman, capital S, Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God, shall fatally bruise the devil's head, and you shall bruise his heel. Oh yes, the devil in Judas sent Jesus to the cross and in that bruised the heel of Jesus even as Jesus crushed the serpent's head. The first declaration of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of redemption, the promise of hope, the promise of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Not our works, but His work. Job 19, verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. For my eye shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Again, Job 19, 25-27. I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. Eschatology in Job. He shall stand on the earth. The Redeemer lives, and He shall stand on the earth. And in my flesh I shall see God. In my flesh, even as His flesh was rotting from Him, even as He was under Satan's oppression and suffering in every possible way, His great hope was that He would see His Redeemer in the flesh and see His God. The Redeemer is God. It's Jesus Christ whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold him, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. In the law of God, Leviticus 17, verse 11, we we find that every blood sacrifice pointed to Jesus, the Christ, coming into the world to atone for sinners. Leviticus 17, 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. God gave Israel, God gave Israel's priesthood a blood sacrifice on the altar. And every day, every sacrifice made by every priest was a picture of Jesus Christ, the final high priest with the final sacrifice of himself to come. Every day they were declaring salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ and his perfect righteousness alone, by his Righteous blood, we are cleansed by his death, the curse of death that we are under because the wage of sin is death, is thus paid, is thus remitted. He makes atonement for our souls. 
In Daniel 9.26, we find a representation of the reality that the prophets all pointed to Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners. Daniel 9.26, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Simple statement, but if you understand Scripture, Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, shall be cut off, crucified, but not for himself. He was not put to death as a criminal because he was a criminal. He was put to death as a criminal because you are and I am. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Daniel says, Christ Jesus will be cut off. And why was he cut off? To save sinners. And of course, Isaiah 53, 1 through 8, Isaiah's Gospels is rightly called by many. Isaiah tells us of a despised, rejected, suffering, bleeding, dying Savior who was cut off in the land of the living, yet rose again to rule and reign forever, sitting at the right hand of the Father as the one mediator between God and men who came to save sinners. Isaiah 53, 1 through 8. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from the prison in judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Look to verse 10. Yet it pleased, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And you make his soul an offering for sin, and he shall see his seed. Why? Because he is risen. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Why? Because he rose again. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many limited atonement. For he shall bear their iniquities. He literally bore their iniquities, a price for a people. He literally bore their iniquities and the wrath of God from God the Father that their iniquities deserved. Which is why in verse 4 it said, stricken and smitten by God. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He rose again. He rose again. And all authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. And he commands us to go and proclaim him as the risen Savior and King of kings who's coming again. I will, the Father says here, he shall divide the spoil with the strong, with his servants. Because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The entire Old Testament, dear saints, is about Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Oh, I wish I had more time to unpack the full glory of the Old Testament revelation of Christ coming into the world to save sinners. But there you've had a brief reminder or introduction. Secondly, the entire New Testament is about Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. And surely we can't deny, surely we would not dare deny that. The entire New Testament 
is about Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. You must know that there is an uprising against that premise. There's an uprising against that basic statement of truth going on. And it used to be more relegated to the liberal denominations. It used to be more relegated to the uh, emergent church, the woke church. But it is very much in the conservative, biblical, Baptist, reformed, whatever flag you want to put over it, church, whatever title you want to put on it, the evangelical church, the church that professes to hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ theologically, by and large, does not hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ evangelistically or missionarily, to phrase the term. What do I mean? I mean, yes, on the page, they get the gospel right. I mean, yes, in their theology books, they get the gospel right. I mean, yes, in the pulpit, they get the gospel right. However, they don't get the mission of the gospel right. They are not carrying it out. They are not marching us to war. They are not decidedly committed to Christ's great mission to seek and to save the lost. They have missed the primacy of the gospel of not just being a doctrine that we carefully defend, we carefully define, but a doctrine that must be disseminated, a doctrine that must be declared, declared to all the world, to every creature, in every place. A gospel that is worthy of being declared to all the world, unashamedly, unashamedly. It's one thing to be unashamed of the gospel in a textbook, unashamed of the gospel in a sermon to the church. It's nothing to be unashamed of the gospel before the world who hates our God and His gospel, who despise both. And that is where we have been most decidedly ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Out there in the world, where we live and dwell amongst sinners who are under the curse of sin and death, who are one breath and one heartbeat from hell. For two years, the entire world has been terrified, terrified of dying and going to great lengths in their terror to flee from death. And yet, where is the church? Did the, did the church stand up? No. Much of the church refused to meet basically for two years. Much of the church, when it did meet, demanded everyone social distance and mask up. Cowing to tyranny, cowing to deception, cowing to the fear of death rather than the fear of God. The fear of death for themselves rather than the fear of death for those who are already under the curse of death, who at any moment could be swallowed by the flames of hell forever. Where is our fear for their precious souls? My response, two years ago, when our governor and mayor put up all over the state and all over our city, stay home, save lives, was no. No, go therefore and save lives and souls. Go therefore. If we're all going to die, we need to stand up for Jesus and proclaim Him. And I soon discern that we're not all going to die, even though, yes, some may die. We're not all going to die. But everyone's fearing death, and that's good. That's good because they should. Because death is coming for them. It's coming for them whether it's 40 years from now, 80 years from now, or 40 minutes from now, death is coming for them. And worse, far worse, hell is coming with it. Did the church stand up? No, the church cowered. The church retreated as a whole. Was there a vast revival of evangelism in the world in light of the fact that everyone's fearing death? No, there wasn't. And now, in a similar manner, as tyranny comes, as tyranny comes, the tyranny of a Romans 
one worldview and government that hates God and loves wickedness and is looking to outlaw God and all righteousness, outlaw the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God and God's church too. What has been the response? Keep going to church. That's been the response. Keep going to church. Hear me, saints. Let's make it very basic. If we won't go, therefore, as Christ's army and turn the world upside down, Satan's army will come and turn our world upside down. And that's exactly what you see on the evening news. And don't forget it. Because every time you see it, it should compel you to go, therefore. Every time you see it, it should compel you to compel other Christians to go, therefore. The entire New Testament is about Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. Matthew 1, verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Oh, that silly angel. Didn't he know Jesus came into the world to you know, help us to be more moral? Help us to be better people, nicer friends, better gift givers, better mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, you know, to convince the world that humanism is true after all. We're all basically good. <laughs> didn't, didn't that silly angel know that Jesus came in to to build a church of folks that gather on Sunday and don't mention his name Monday through Saturday unless they join the God-haters in blaspheming his name or laughing at their jokes in which they're blaspheming his name. You should call his name Jesus, said the angel. Any significance to that? Savior. You should call his name Savior. That's what Jesus means. For he will save his people from their sins. That's the mission. That's why he was born. That's why the creator of the cosmos came into his cosmos. To save his people from their sins. Matthew 9 verse 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He didn't come to gather the righteous, make a holy club of all the righteous folks. There aren't any. It'd be a, a one-person club, just Jesus. He came to call sinners. That's our mission. Do you like sinners? I like them. Be careful that you don't like them so much you join them in sin. But I like them. I love them. I, I don't just despise them. Now, the Spirit of God within us should compel us, yep, to be angry with sin to a certain degree, to hate sin to a certain degree, and, and to feel a righteous indignation at these gross displays of sin and defiance of our God. And yet... The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. We should love them and pity them. They are so lost. So tragically lost. They don't know up from down, left from right, truth from error. They are truthless. They are hopeless. They are directionless. They're in a wilderness of sin with a wilderness of wolves, with so many lies, so many deceptions being forced upon them constantly. And you are the people of truth, the people of the God of truth. You have the compass that points to heaven. Oh, that we would go and show them the way, that we would go and rescue them in the power of the Spirit of God. Matthew eighteen eleven, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That's what He's come for. To save that which was lost. 
If you're thinking I'm making too much to do about 1 Timothy 1.15, Pastor, too much to do. Well, Matthew says, the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sinners to repentance. That's Jesus' mission, to call sinners to repentance. And you may recall in John 16, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Our job is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in calling sinners to repentance. We must expose sin, which is going to really upset them in our current culture. Nevertheless, it's our job. It's our mandate. Forget the mandates of these governors and mayors. It's our mandate. It's the command of God to go and preach repentance. It's the command of your King, Jesus, to go and preach repentance to all nations and all peoples in all places. For He came to save His people from their sins. Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He came to give his life a ransom for many. That's what he came for. That's what he came to do. He came to save. He came to seek and save the lost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What are we doing with that? Now hear me. As I preach to you, I'm preaching to me. As I preach to you, I'm preaching to the entire church. Because none of us are doing enough with it. You're not the Apostle Paul, and you're not Jesus. But we all must be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Growing in our commitment to Christ as King and dying to self and taking up His cross. We need to assess our lives. Assess what we're living for. What are our goals? Our true goals are revealed by how we are spent. I asked earlier, or challenged you earlier, to be spent for Christ and His gospel. How are you spending your life? How are you spending your time? How are you spending the resources God has given you? Time. That's the most valuable resource. Time. Are you studying to show yourself approved so you are equipped, so you are ready to proclaim the God you know and the God you love? And by the way, if you are saved, you're ready. Now, you should get much more ready, but if you're saved, you're ready, right? If you know what the woman... And Samaria, uh, Samaria knew, the Samaritan woman, this is the Christ. If you know that, you know enough to tell others, this is the Christ, this is Jesus, this is the Savior. But don't stop there. There's more. And you can refine that message and broaden it out, raise it up and sink it down. Mark 1.15 The Lord Jesus' first message, His last message, our message, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. We can't leave off repentance because it makes people uncomfortable, therefore they might not like us. We can't cut by the bad news. God is holy, you're not. Hell is coming. We can't cut by the bad news. Why do they need a Savior if God isn't holy and they're not sinful and hell's not real? Who talked about hell more than anyone? Jesus. Why? Because he's the savior of sinners from hell. In fact, no one is more acquainted with hell than Jesus. Because he took eternity's wrath for a multitude of sinners. No one has taken more hell than Jesus Christ. Thus he preached about hell. He warned people about hell. And he is very intimately aware of the horror of hell. Luke 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. How have we lost the primacy of that reality? Should that not mark every Christian's life, the primacy of that reality, that Christ Jesus has come to save save sinners, that Christ Jesus has come to seek and to save that which was lost? John 1.29, John the Baptist, full of the Holy Spirit, sees Jesus coming at the outset of his ministry. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is this not the central theme? The central message beginning to end? Genesis to Revelation? 
John 12, verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Go find them. Go find them. They're out there. They're everywhere. Go find them. That's what he came to do, to save them. And he has redeemed us to God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Find them. Saints, I believe in borders. I believe there's an insurrection taking place by opening our borders. And I hate it. But you know what I hate more? Sin and Satan and death and hell. And so I love those coming across our borders. It's not their fault so much as the insurrectionists in the White House. And if I was living where they were living and the border was wide open here, I'd load up my family too. So I'm glad they're here from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not just South America, not just Central America, not just Mexico. They're coming from all the world through our southern border. And I look forward to bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Love them. Don't resent them. Resent the evil man in the White House. In the insurrection he's seeking to carry out. For God is bringing to our door here in Portland, I mean, wow, what a vast mission field. All we need to do is walk out the front door. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is right there. Every worldview, every world religion, every cult, it's right there. We are in a privileged position to live our one little life, that little dash between two dates. We're in a privileged place to live that life to the full glory of God as missionaries in the front lines. We don't have to go to Zimbabwe. We're here. We've arrived. What is a missionary? A pastor in a foreign land that needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, training and equipping people to do the work of the ministry and saying, follow me as I follow Christ as they go out in that foreign land to do what we're supposed to be doing here. We are the Lord's missionaries right here. Praise God for missionaries who go elsewhere. But don't think that that's what they should do over there. And by the way, sadly, most missionaries aren't doing that over there. They're not missionaries in the biblical sense. Praise God for the true ones. But sadly, many are not missionaries who are under that title. The entire New Testament is about Christ Jesus coming to the world to save sinners. The entire Old Testament is about Jesus Christ coming to the world to save sinners. If Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he did, what are Christians, followers of Christ, to do about it? What does Christ seeking to save sinners have to do with the local church? What does Christ seeking to save sinners have to do with how pastors are to be trained? What does Christ seeking to save sinners have to do with the weekly pastoral schedule? What does Christ seeking to save sinners have to do with the average Christian? What does Christ seeking to save sinners have to do with the average Christian's expense of time and life energy? What does Christ seeking to save sinners have to do with hearing, well done, good and faithful servant when we stand before the Lord? Truth be told, most biblical churches, churches that would scoff at Joel Osteen's best life now heresy, are in actuality wholly committed to a best life now ministry and way of life. For they know nothing of dying to self and taking up the cross. Well, we have one minute left for the third point. The mission of the church is to join Christ Jesus in seeking to save sinners. Is that not obvious? 
Do I even need to state it? Should I bother to preach it even? Yes. <laughs> the mission of the church is to join Christ Jesus in seeking to save sinners. We don't need to call a committee. Get a cross-section of the church, call a committee and say, what do you think the mission of our church should be? What do you, mission of, what do you think the mission of the church should be? This is the mission. Explicitly, clearly, undeniably. We just don't like it because the mission demands that we die and take up the cross. Now, I know it. I know we don't like it because I'm part of the we. Nobody likes to die. But I am here to tell you, I'm here to stand before you today to tell you, your best life now is through dying to self and taking up the cross. And you can't keep this life. You can't keep your pretty face. You can't keep your hair. Amen. You can't keep your riches. They're all going to fall out of your dead hands. You can't keep your house, your cars. You can't keep anything except the people around you if they're in the gospel, if they're beneath Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they're born again from above, as faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The only thing you can keep in this world are people. So what we do with our time matters. Are we spending our life on the upkeep of things we can't keep? On the maintenance of things we can't keep? On the gathering of things we can't keep? Does that make any sense? Spend your life primarily on that which you can keep. Eternal souls. When you get to heaven... Will there be anyone there because of the testimony of your lips? Because you proclaim Jesus and his gospel. And when you get to heaven, will you be ashamed? Or will the angels open the gates broadly to receive a champion, a warrior for Christ, who in their sphere of influence, with their giftedness, with the opportunities God gave them, was faithful to fight a good fight for the glory of God and the redemption of sinners. The mission of the church is to join Christ Jesus in seeking to save sinners. In Mark 6, verses 7 through 12, we see the Lord Jesus called his disciples to himself and he began to send them out two by two. And he sent them out with a simple plan. Don't complicate it. Don't complicate it. You don't need much. Just go preach the word of God. Verse 12, so they went out and preached that people should repent. That's still the plan. Send people out to proclaim that people should repent. But hey, that's too easy. That's too simple. Let's make it complex. In fact, let's make it so complex we never actually have to do it because we'll always be getting, getting ready to do it. We'll always be training to do it. And unless you have a doctorate in the gospel, you, you're not qualified. In Luke 9, verses 1 through 6, the Lord Jesus sends them out two by two, preaching repentance. He gave them power and authority. Verse 2, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God. And he said, take nothing for the journey. Take nothing for the journey. Keep it simple. We think we're wiser than God. We like to add all sorts of things on. We need this, and we need this, and we need this, and we need this. And that'll make the gospel work. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. The scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Not, not one jot or tittle will return void. It will accomplish what God pleases. It will perform that for which he sent it. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Do we believe these things? Then let's keep it simple. Let's keep it simple. They don't need our fine apologetics arguments. They don't need our finest creationist evidences. Now, mind you, study some apologetics. Study some creation science. But that's not the key to salvation. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Go with the word. The sower sows the apologetics argument. The sower sows the good creationist evidence. Now, the sower sows the word. The sower sows the apple pie with ice cream. The sower sows the hospitality and a smile. No, the sower sows the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. 
The world needs the word. They need the revelation of God. They need us to go, therefore. And if all you've got is John 3.16, then wield it. Wield it. But if all you've got is John 3.16, study to show yourself approved as a worker, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Luke 10, 1 through 7, Jesus sent 70, 70, not just the 12, 70 out two by two to every city. Verse 2, then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out his laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves, carry neither money bag nor knapsack nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter first, say, first say, Peace to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. The labor is worthy of his wages. Do not go house to house, meaning to seek the best house, you know, the best food. What do you got for supper? Um, you know what's tragic? That last little bit, do not go house to house. I know pastors who take that out of context to justify not going house to house to proclaim Jesus. They twist Scripture to justify not doing what Paul told the elders of Ephesus that he was faithful to do in Acts chapter 20, that he publicly and house to house administered the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, dear saints, this is Jesus' pattern This is Jesus' design. This is Jesus' command to train up and equip the church to go and do the work of the ministry, the ministry, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what it's all about. Every pastor should be praying for his 70 soldiers of the cross. Every pastor should be praying for his 70 sword of the spirit-wielding, full armor of God-wearing gospel warriors. Every pastor should be praying for his 70 who have, by the grace of God, died to self and taken up the cross. The church still has a great commission to go into the world to tell the world about Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. Unashamed. Of the Great Commission. That is the need of the hour. That has always been the need. But the hour has never been more pressing, the need never more pressing than it is now. Oh, that God would raise up His church, beginning with you and I, beginning with you and I. And again, I opened before the sermon telling you, praise God, one of our brothers, and praise God, three other brothers from around this nation stood up for the first time to preach Christ in the open air. That is no small thing. Now, you don't have to be an open-air preacher to be obedient to the Great Commission. That's not what I'm saying. But there are a great many preachers who are disobedient to the Great Commission, refusing to open their mouth and use their lungs in the public realm as Jesus modeled, as Jesus trained and equipped, and as Jesus commanded, and as the church on the pages of Scripture, and throughout the history of the church, has turned the world upside down. Every center, every city center should have heralds of Christ in it. Think how many people are in church today across Portland, the most atheist city in America. Think how many Christians are in church today. Think how many men call themselves pastors today in Portland. Portland, the most atheist city in America. And yet, I have never, ever run into another pastor in all my years here, never run into another pastor outside an abortion clinic, never run into another pastor down at the Saturday market in the heart of Portland, never run into another another pastor on the riverfront in the heart of Portland where thousands of their perishing in their sins, defying and blaspheming God in all these years. And let me close with this. It pained my heart deeply when the maintenance man at one of the world's most murderous abortuaries, came out and said, yeah, yeah, I hear you. But if what you say is true, why are you the only pastor here ever? And why are you the only church here ever? That is a sad indictment. 
May God grant his church repentance, beginning with his pastors and his elders and the men. And may the pastors be raised up to say to the flock that God has given them charge over, to equip for the work of the ministry that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. May he raise them up to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And may they break out of the four walls. May they be unchained from the pulpit and carry the gospel to the byways and the highways where the sinners are perishing every day all over the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, Lord. We pray you'd unleash it from this little pulpit, Lord, from this little man, from our little church. Unleash your word, Father. It's not about me. It's not about the pulpit here. It's not about our church. It's about Christ and his glory through the redemption of sinners as your church stands up to obey Christ, going, therefore, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that we've commanded. We pray it in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.